And as the Bible shows us time and time and time again, the foolish decision is that which leads to the sinful decision. You read the book of Proverbs and all the way through from beginning to end, there is a very tight relationship between folly and sin. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one with Pastor Paul Twist in a new series on the Tower of Babel, building for whose glory? From the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 11. Did you ever wake up one morning and say to yourself, well, today's the day I'm really gonna sin? Of course not. No one sets out to do something evil. Well, maybe those hit men in the movies, but that's another sermon. No, we don't decide to be sinners. We don't even decide to be foolish. Yet, both of those things happen. We do foolish things, and then we sin, one after another, and sometimes the other way around. Why? In this series, Building for Whose Glory? Pastor Paul Twist uses the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 to provide for us the reason we act like fools and sin against both man and God. Here's part one. So it's Sunday morning, and here we are again, around God's Word at church, just like we were last Sunday. Here we are again. And I trust that every Sunday morning, there is a level of anticipation and excitement as you think through what we'll be doing today, coming together as God's people, singing songs of praise, gathering around His Word, fellowshipping together. Here we are again, and that you're excited to do that, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. At the same time, there is possibly a note of sobriety as you think through each and every Sunday, because here we are again. Christ still hasn't returned, and sin is still a real thing in all of our hearts. Sin resides with us. Sin abounds in the world around us. Here we are again. And the problems that you know of, the issues that you fight against, the expressions of sin in your life persist. Most of the problems that we bring on a Sunday are not quickly fixed, but the Lord is dealing with them according to his wisdom over a long period of time. And so we rise on a Sunday morning and come to church, and with a note of sobriety, we acknowledge, here we are again. And you can extend that analogy to a Monday morning. It's not unique to Sundays. You get up tomorrow morning and you do your Monday thing, whatever that is. For many, you'll get up and you'll go to work and you'll do the same things on Monday tomorrow as you did last Monday and the Monday before. Here we are again. We just keep doing the same things. And there's many blessings and there's many expressions of God's goodness in that. And at the same time, the reality of sin persists. Here we are again. That is the sense, very much, of this episode in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel communicates, here we are again. If you think about the big picture where we've come so far, we've moved from the grandeur and the glory of God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1, 
where he fashioned his creation and set man at the privileged position to preside over all of it as his image bearer, we've fallen from there. Genesis chapter 3, man rebels. And then 4 through 6, we see sin explode. Sin gets out of control such that we read that God regretted that he had made mankind. And then he wipes the slate clean. He floods the whole earth. It is an act of universal judgment. At the same time, it's an act of salvation as he preserves one family, Noah and his family. He preserves them, and as he emerges from the ark and the flood waters subside, we start afresh. And the flood narrative is very interesting because it's crafted and it's told in such a way to be evocative of those first few chapters. Noah is presented to us as a new Adam in a new creation. And so we might be forgiven as we read of Noah emerging from the ark. We might be forgiven for having a a high level of hope that this time it's going to be different. And then just a few chapters pass and we read of this strange building experiment. Tower of Babel, it's written very much to remind us of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The message that Moses tries to communicate is here we are again. It's crafted and presented to us as a full narrative, take two. The universal flood didn't deal with sin at the heart level. It still is an issue for us. And the first section of Genesis is coming to a close. Genesis 1 through 11 is the first major section of this book. We're close to the end of that. And so the feeling that this episode communicates is one of despair. It is a dark, somber episode at the end of the first major unit in this book. And that's intentional. Moses wants us to understand in mankind, in and of himself, there is no hope. We can't fix the mess we're in, and thus it should drive us towards a consideration of God's abundant grace. And there is an expression of God's grace, even within this passage. And then as you project forward and you see where things are headed, you start to see that God is committed to fixing this problem. We start to see traces of the gospel here in Genesis, and the despair of the Tower of Babel incident should prompt us to look all the more to God's grace and to rely on him. Now, the unit divides quite nicely into three sections. If you notice when I read it, there are three times that we read, come, let us. The first time in verse 3, the next time in verse 4, and then the last time in verse 7. Come, let us. Twice from men and once from God himself. And we can arrange our thoughts this morning around those three speeches. And if I were to give them titles, I would say the first is plans to build, The second, come let us, gives us a purpose for building. And the third is reasons to confuse. Plans to build, purpose for building, and reasons to confuse. And in all of them, we see the progression and the manifestation of our sin, and then God's gracious response that should point us towards the gospel. Beginning with the first then, plans to build, we read here in the first section of the book some concerning ideas. It's not an outright manifestation of sin, at least not yet. But in these first few verses, as we start to see the intention 
to embark upon this building project, there are some reasons for us to be rightly concerned. You see, we begin, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Moses is being emphatic there. One language, the same words. He's trying to stress the unity they had, at least in their communication. And that's going to be the vehicle that they use for sin. And then, verse 2, the people migrated from the east. Well, that's the first warning sign. In the book of Genesis, there is a motif that transpires all the way through the book relating to the direction of eastward. There is a motif in the book of Genesis wherein we see traveling in an easterly direction is bad news. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebel against God. God pushes them out of the garden. He expels them and he sets them where? East of Edom. He pushes them east of the garden, and that's where the cherubim are set up to guard to stop them entering back in. And that begins a trajectory that's continued all the way through the book of Genesis, wherein any travel eastward results in problems. So in the very next chapter, Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. God punishes him, and it says he set him east of Eden, yet further east than they already were. So if you picture the geography, mankind has been put out of the garden to the east of it, and then Cain gets pushed further east as a result of his sin. If we skip forward a few chapters, we read about Abram and Lot, and they come to a point where they separate, and Abram says, you, you pick which way you want to go, and Lot goes east. Bad choice. Immediately, he runs into trouble, and Abram needs to rescue him. And there are more and more examples of this. There is a a motif that runs all the way through the book of Genesis, wherein traveling east is associated with sin. So as we read in verse 2 of this episode, the people migrated from the east, and by inference they're going further eastward now, it seems to be that they're not making a very good choice. We then read they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Again... This raises concerns. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God gave the mandate to mankind, and he said, you are to go. The mandate that rests on mankind is to fill the earth. Fill the earth, populate it as image bearers. And so there should be, in Genesis, obedience to God looks like a continual movement because the mandate is by no means fulfilled. And there's a number of examples in Genesis where settling is associated with sin, and this would be one of them. The people are making a foolish choice to not obey the mandate. And here there's a very evident dispersing. We call this the table of nations. The people are going out. It's a good thing because they need to make manifest God's glory the whole earth over. And we read in 11.2, these people decided to settle. And so we're having concerns about this building project. Thirdly, they say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. What's the problem there? If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know it's the land of rocks. It's what the Jewish people call it. It's the land of rocks. There are huge rocks everywhere. And they joke that when God made Israel, he sneezed and spilled all his rocks over the land. And so the the building projects in Canaan and and later on in in the Bible in in Israel, the building projects were very different to elsewhere in the ancient Near East. They would get these huge boulders and they would figure out a way to put them all together and, and their buildings looked different to, say, the Egyptians. 
In Egypt, they had this technology where they would fashion bricks just like this. They would cut out from their rock these bricks and they would build their structures. And you say, so is it that God's against technology? That's not the problem. What we know about those building projects in Egypt and other nations is that on every single brick would be carved the name of the king who presided over the project. His name was stamped on the brick so as to say, this is my deal. It's all about me. And then the building projects themselves were always in an effort for the king to validate his reign before the gods. That was always the reason for them building. They would build huge structures in an effort to say to the gods, I'm something. I'm a big deal. And look at my building project. It says so. So again, in these first few verses of this episode, there is no outright manifestation of sin that we could point to the text and say, this is what they did wrong. That's yet to come. But there are clues there are enough clues to suggest that they are making foolish choice. If I was to summarize the first, come let us, it would be, come let us make a foolish decision. That's the notion of what's going on here at the very beginning. And as the Bible shows us time and time and time again, the foolish decision is that which leads to the sinful decision. You read the book of Proverbs, and all the way through, from beginning to end, there is a very tight relationship between folly and sin. Think about how it is you go about your day. My guess is it's not that you get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to choose to sin against the Lord. That's not how sin works. Rather, you get up in the morning and you make a foolish choice. You haven't studied the wisdom that God has given to us in his word, and so you make a foolish choice, and it's your foolish choice that leads to your sinful actions. And this is what's going on at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 11. And what this text would commend us all to is a study of God's wisdom. To even study the first few chapters of Genesis where we see this principle played out. There's enough folly in the first few chapters of Genesis to understand that it never leads to righteous behavior. Cain brought an improper sacrifice before God. And God warned him. He said, your your countenance has dropped. Sin is crouching at the door. It is ready to consume you. You made a foolish choice. Would you change? And he doesn't. And so sure enough, he becomes a murderer. He brings a second-rate sacrifice, and that leads to him murdering his brother. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were pleasing to the eye. But you don't have to act on it. God has put in place established boundaries in his created order. To see it is not necessarily to then run headlong into it, and that's exactly what they do. We get in the first 11 chapters of Genesis a whole theology of sin. Anything you could ever want to know about sin can be found in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, and tightly connected is foolish behavior. And these men go about some foolish choices, and that leads to then their intentions for building, with the second come, let us, in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's not that often in the Old Testament, and especially Old Testament narrative sections, it's not that often that we're given the intentions 
of man's heart as clearly and as plainly as we are here. Normally, the narrative is describing what we can see, and we're trying to make inferences. Why did he do that? Why did he respond that way? Very occasionally, the text tells us this was what was going on in their hearts. And so the the builders here just are outright. They're not ashamed in any sense. They say, let's build, and here's why. And this is their sin, and we can break it down into three particular sins. First of all, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. There's the first strike. The city and the tower, the original syntax could easily be construed as let us build a city tower. So rather than let us build a city and a tower, let us build a city tower. If you've ever seen the famous painting of the Tower of Babel by an artist called Bruegel, he paints this enormous structure, huge in its circumference, going up to the heaven. And if you look closely, there's all these men walking around the structure. It is a city tower. And quite possibly in that alone, there is a notion of self-reliance. We're going to build something so enormous that we can not depend on anything else. This is our city tower. But the bigger issue is that they're building it up to the heavens. You have to understand this is not an effort on the part of these men to have a richer relationship with the Lord. They're not saying, let's build a city tower to try and have better communion with God. If we could just be up there. No, they're trying to make themselves equal with God. They're trying to get up to the point to which they were not given. God did not establish them to have any kind of existence in the heavens, but very clearly, he said to them, you are to be on earth. He gave them a lofty position on earth, but he very definitely set them on earth. And as they build a city tower up to the heavens, this is their attempt to become equal with God. Secondly, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. There's strike two. The notion of a name in the ancient Near East was far, far broader and more meaningful than our names are today. Our names today are the means by which we know each other. That's what we're called. A name in biblical times told you just about everything you want to know about that person. Their name meant everything. It communicated their character, who they were, where they come from. It it invokes their whole life. When you invoke a person's name, it invokes their whole life. This is why we say in our prayers, in Jesus' name. It's not just that it's right and proper to say his name before we say our men. But what we're communicating in that theological statement is, God, I am coming to you. These prayers are being offered to you through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name. I can't give you prayers apart from Jesus. And so we say, there's our shorthand, in Jesus' name. Think about that when you pray. These folks wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, why is that a problem? Again, because in Genesis chapter 1, God named them. God said, you'll be called Adam, it means from the earth. And with that, there's a whole theology that is wonderful, it's glorious. You're going to be called Adam, you're taken from the dirt, and I'm going to set you above all of the created order. You occupy the the prime spot above everything else. That's what it means to be Adam. And I'm going to set my image on you in a way that no other creature on planet earth gets my image. You're the only one. 
And I'm going to give you this glorious mandate to rule over everything in this vice-regent-like position. So God had given them this privileged position that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 8 when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The psalmist there is just astounded at God's goodness to this person. And yet these people say, but it's not enough. We want to go further, and actually we want to decide our name for ourselves. We want to to push back on what you've determined is good for us. In Genesis chapter 1, you gave us our job description, and it is glorious, and it's not enough. So we want to make a name for ourselves, and we want to determine the limits by which we live. If in building a tower up to the heavens, they were trying to make themselves equal with God, by seeking a name for themselves, they were trying to supplant God. They were now trying to take the role of God and say, we get to name ourselves. And think again, just how obnoxious and arrogant this is. God had even said to Adam, you get to name everything else. I name you, you name everything else. As Adam names everything else, he presides over the, the, the kingdom. But he doesn't get to name himself. And that's what these builders were trying to do. Thirdly, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is a strange comment, right? If you had read the Tower of Babel incident and I said, what, what's the issue? Tell me the sin. Perhaps you would say, well, it's pride. And, and I agree, at a fundamental level, it's pride. But how then do you account for the fact that the text tells us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth? Why was that even important to them? It's important to them because in Genesis chapter 1, again, God says, you need to go. You need to fill the whole earth. And if I can summarize that Adamic mandate, as we refer to it, God says two things. My image is on you. Fill the earth. Take those two thoughts together. My image is on you. Fill the earth. To be an image bearer is to be a representative of God. You you represent me in a way that no other creature does, and with that, fill the earth. So the way that I summarize the Adamic mandate is that God was saying to Adam, make my glory known in a way that no other creature on planet earth is able to. In a manner and to an extent that nothing else can, you make my glory known. Fill the earth with image bearers. Cause my glory to be manifest the whole world over, not just here in Eden. That was the glorious commission that he gave to mankind. And the builders at Babel fold their arms and knowingly defying that say, we will not go. We refuse to get on board with the mission to make God's glory known. It is just obnoxious sin that they're involved here. The pride of of the human heart, certainly, but worked out in such specific ways so as to try and make themselves equal with God, so as to supplant God, and now so as to thwart His mission. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. There's a great line in an old movie that goes, He who is wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. What you're wrapped up in is what makes the foundation of your life. If you are your own foundation, you're going to be disappointed at some point in your life how things have turned out. How's it been going so far? Have you tried making God happy the reason for your existence? 
What size wrapping would that package make in your life? If you'd like to learn more about how to build a life that has a strong foundation and gives glory to God instead of you, come to TimelessTruthToday.org, then select Broadcasts, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. While you're at TimelessTruthToday.org, would you consider teaming with us by making a financial gift to support this outreach radio ministry? Simply go to Donate on the homepage and there give your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow. It's part two of Building for Whose Glory? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.